All right, here we are, part two of uh, Man Up with Billy Kid podcast. Uh, this is the very first podcast on April 12th, 2018. Captain William A. Bill Robinson, USA Air Force, retired out of Madisonville, Tennessee, the longest held enlisted man uh, in POW in history of uh, the United States. And it's a pleasure to have you here, sir. I appreciate you driving all the way up here from Madisonville. To, An to, honor to be with him. I, I wanted to have you on my very first podcast. Well, and thank you. Hopefully I'll be able to have you again. Uh, can I ask you how old a man are you? I'll be 75 in, in August. 75, you enlisted when you were 18. 18. Got shot down at 22. Right. We talked about uh, everything that led up to that in part one podcast. So now... You're trying to make it through the jungle. You're hoping that that your fellow soldiers will find you guys. There were four of you, three or four? It was three of us. Uh, the, it was four on the crew, and the, our one. co-pilot got separated from us. And uh, he, uh, to finish his story, he ended up uh, not being captured and made it into Laos, uh, you know, some 30 miles away, and then he was captured in Laos, and he spent uh, two years in captivity there, and he was killed during an escape attempt in 1967, and his remains have never been returned home yet. So he is still one of those missing in action POWs? Yes. How many are there, do you know offhand? Uh, 1,602 still listed as missing in action from the Vietnam era. 1,602. They joined some 83,000 other Americans from all wars that are still listed as missing in action. 83,000. Yes. So um, we still have uh, a lot of effort being put into it. Uh, right now, they're, you know, in Hawaii, they're going through remains right now. and uh, Right. And um, hopefully we will have a continuous accounting and the difficulty they're running into right now is that uh, some of the families choose not to provide dna and so it makes it difficult when they don't have that information to be able to well, sure there's no way to know uh to positively identify Unless- they they have from the, what i understand there are around 200 remains that you know they know they're human remains but they don't know you know, because of lack of DNA, they don't have any, any, any way to identify who they are. Oh, wow, that's interesting. So you, all right. So when you guys, you're you're in the jungle, you're feeling pretty good about it because you know that you know that the military's got a, a pretty good idea of where you are because they know where your helicopter right. was shot down. Yeah, you can't be far from it, and so they're just. Uh, circling the area trying to find you then what happens well you know like, like i said with, without another airborne rescue you know that was going to be after dark before they got there so we just matter of us it was just trying to stay hidden until darkness and then try to move out of the area right but unfortunately as we were in hiding the the voices of the vietnamese getting getting closer and closer and and more and more in number, and you know, and I can remember the words of my pilot as we looked at uh, probably a hundred folks with everything from machine guns to machetes, and and the pilot said, you know, that uh, live to fight another day. And once they had identified, they knew where we were. We had a six shooter, but you know, we could have probably took out four or five of them. But you know, when you're looking at a hundred to one, it's probably better off to, you know, to regroup and 
live to fight another day. Right. She had and, a little thirty-eight special service yeah. weapon, and that was about it. And that would have just that would have just, just alienated them, the rather. <laughs> right. <laughs> but then we um, we were taken into captivity, and at first they were. You know, the curiosity, you know, we were taken down to the local villages. And at first, it, uh, you know, uh, you know, it, you know, when we think about Americans versus Vietnamese, you know, they were, we were a foot tall and 100 pounds heavier. So it wasn't like we blended in in the neighborhood. You know? <laughs> and uh, so and, uh, and and at first they brought us out and uh, and one by one and. Just showing Parade you off. Of, just showing us off like a prize trophy. You know, you're going to hire a, a hunter, throw the deer across the hood of the car or the sure. truck, you know, with this, we're the kind of the same way. And then all of a sudden, they brought in a uh, agitator, I call him, you know, with his, and next thing you know, he was, he, he turned the whole crowd against us and they were commenced to beating the hell out of us just because we were americans and uh was this the guy they called the one-armed bandit uh, well no this was, was like, this was, was before we got to that one that was yeah. before you got to that one yeah we had we had a softening up period you know where they uh we went from village to village and they would just prayed us out and and then um, rumble up to hatred you might say and the next thing you know we're we were getting the hell beat out of us and and in fact, they they got a little more sophisticated. And one morning, they uh, marched me out, and of course, I'm my hands are tied behind my back, and my feet are tied together, and uh, no shoes, no shoes, and uh, and they nailed us down, uh, knelt me down, and next to what I had a blindfold on, but I was looking down into a dark hole, and I thought that was going to be my final resting place, and. And I could see from the shadows two guards standing behind me with weapons pointed at me, and it like somebody read an official document, and I was sitting there imagining that basically he was reading my my charges, their findings, and you know, and their, and I was getting ready to witness my own execution. But for some reason, when they got to that point, the two guards lowered their weapons and. It lifted me up and took me back to my makeshift cell, and at that point, I realized that, or you know, something went over me that I was going to survive this mess, and uh, all I had to do was just hang in there. And so, uh, at that point, uh, you know, uh, we moved on from there, and and uh, and you're 22 years old. Well, you know, that's you know, that, that's just that's uh, just a. But I mean, just imagine. I mean, people listening right now, they're thinking about it. Twenty-two years old, your children, twenty-two years old. Imagine going through experiencing this and all this. Uh, I mean, it, it was obviously intimidation. They were just they were trying to scare you. Look, look, this is what can happen to you. Right. And you weren't thinking, well, I'm worth more to them alive than I am dead. No, I looked, I looked dead at that moment. I honestly, when this whole thing started, I didn't think I'd see my twenty-third birthday. Right. And uh, you know, and like I said, I'm headed towards 75. Here so, you are right here today. Uh, so, the good Lord has something else for me to do. I'm not hadn't figured it all out yet, but I, I'm still lining up. <laughs> well, you're a good man. Seven and a half years in captivity. Again, if you just tuned into this or just getting on this, uh, Captain William A. Bill Robinson out of Madisonville, Tennessee, the longest held um, non commissioned officer or non commissioned uh, troop um, enlisted man. 
POW, seven and a half years, 2,703 days in captivity and uh, going all the way back to the Revolutionary War. No enlisted man has ever spent more time there. You got out of it. All right. What about- I just hope that I never lose that title. What title? <laughs> Longest held. Uh, me too. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Or anyone. We don't. We certainly don't want that. But, uh, you know, we've, we've all seen the movies. We've seen The Deer Hunter and we've seen The Apocalypse Now and all of that about Vietnam and how things uh, transpired over there. Now, let's, uh, let's move forward a little bit. Um, I don't really want to glorify all the torture that you went through. I think we probably know but let, let's let's focus on one thing what what do you feel like was the worst torture that you endured or that you or that you witnessed while you were over there well the worst torture that i experienced is when the fella in the next cell was going through torture and i couldn't do anything about it mm-hmm. you know i had no control over his situation you know and all i could do was pray and pass on words of encouragement to hang in there and, and, and you know we, we it was important when you when to say win and it was we realized that we couldn't win every battle but we once they resorted to force then we had in our own way won that battle because their their objective from day one the, was to win us over and they and they you know they tried to uh, convince us how wonderful communism was and you know and and you work hard and give half of it to somebody else and then so we just told we were under the capitalist system you know we like to help those who are willing to help themselves but we we just didn't feel like that we had to had to give all we had for our freeloaders you know and uh, and so you know we had been raised all our life that communism wasn't a good idea you know and, of course and uh uh, it it was based on good principles. People don't realize that basically what the communists did, they didn't have any creative writing. All they did is took the New Testament uh, and substituted the state in the place of God. And and so if you really if you really want to understand what communism is all about, read the read the New Testament and uh, replace God and with the word state and you'll understand where they where they got all their information from wow i've never heard that yeah they they, they weren't even creative in the beginning <laughs> right no and they and that you know very primitive but very crafty uh, individuals and you're on their turf too you're, oh yeah you're in their jungle and um so then as things progressed um obviously back home Many people were not uh, happy that we were over there and feel like, you know, they call it the big war machine. Well, you know, what happened to us is Robert McNamara in January 66 took to the airways and labeled the prisoners of war as expendable. And basically, you know, he tried to tell our families he did that to, uh, to uh, help us survive. And he encouraged our families to remain silent as they worked the problem. But reality was that through the efforts of McNamara and Johnson, they relegated the POWs to the back pages of the newspaper. And we were just kind of never heard of again until mid-68 when our families got tired of the garbage they were being fed. And they they took to the airways and expressing their disappointment in, in the um, information they were getting. In fact, I... 
this past year on my anniversary of my shoot down, I put my the telegram that my family was sent, and the, and the last line of that paragraph uh, telegram that was found laying in the floor in the living room floor of my home, it says, "Please do not divulge this information." You know, in other words, even the government from day one asked that they not tell people that we were missing in action. Right. And that, but they knew you were still alive. Maybe they, no. They I was I was carried as missing in action for two and a half, almost three years before the Vietnamese owned up to me being there. Even though I had written a letter home, but it, because it did not come in uh, through official channels, then they they would not verify that I was alive. Right, and, and that you uh, actually wrote that letter. Right. right, I got you. My parents were assured that I had written the letter, but. Uh, because of the the government bureaucracy, I was essentially carried as missing in action for three and a half years. Wow! So that was uh, over half the time you were there. Yeah, Seven and, and, a half and years of course, now, you know, there were some guys that their families did not find out until a week before we were released that they were coming home. That has got to be. I mean, it's like a, it's like having a missing child. I mean, well, uh, it was a missing child. Yeah. I'm talking like a young child, of, 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 you know, no. five or ten year old goes missing, whatever. But you. Um, you know, you're still their son, and they, every day they wake up and they don't know: is he alive? Is he dead? Is he being right. tortured? Is he okay? Um, yeah, they, and you know that's that's the thing that so many leave out is the pain and suffering that the families went through, not only for their combat sons and daughters and uh, mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and. Uh, uh, but for the POW, so all every you know every family went through the strain, and especially with the anti-war movement on the rise in the country. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, uh, I, I used a statement that Ross Perot made in 1992 that uh, never again should we commit the troops without committing the nation. Mm-hmm. And this is what we did: we committed the troops then without committing the nation. And then tried to justify it later, and uh, you know, and uh, you know, and I remember back then I was in Korea in '63 when LBJ stood up and told the world, "said I'm I'm not going to send American boys to do what Asian boys should do from there for themselves." And in three years, he went to 600,000 troops in Southeast Asia, you know, and and so essentially he. Uh, you know, as a politician, you know, I guess they are allowed to lie, you know, so. <laughs> you think? <laughs> you think? <laughs> All right. Once again, speaking with Captain William A. Bill Robinson, U.S. Air Force, retired, the longest held enlisted man uh, in POW in the history of this very country. Going to talk to him one more time. i got one more segment here on the uh, Man Up with Billy Kid podcast. Y'all hang on.